This will be our text for this evening. It's found on page 517 in the few Bibles before you. Psalm 124. It's not typically a, a psalm that we think of as like a great psalm. We usually go to Psalm 23, Psalm 34, 16, 73, 91. I think this psalm has a lot to say. And I was quite surprised as I began to study it about the message that it has for God's people in this present day. Uh, and I'm excited to share that with you all this evening. So Psalm 124, this is God's holy and inspired word. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, your psalmist confesses that uh, you have hidden his wor your word in his heart that he might not sin against you. And so too now, when your word is proclaimed in power and truth, you hide and store it up in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we, uh, we trust that promise, Lord. We, we lay our confident trust in it. And we thank you for your goodness that here you promise to meet your people. And we ask your special, special blessing on this teaching that it may comfort and lift up your, the hearts of your people from the dreariness of life in a sin-cursed world to the beauty of the kingdom that is to come. Father, we ask this in Christ's name by the help of his spirit. Amen. One of my favorite novels is a, a story by uh, Cormac McCarthy entitled The Road. Uh, the Road is a story, as you can imagine, about two pilgrims. Uh, but much more than a story simply about two pilgrims, it's a story about two pilgrims traveling and making a pilgrimage in a post-apocalyptic world. Now, if such a thing could be imagined, you might close your eyes and you would see a world where the sky is perpetually dark, where ash fills the air, and where the sun no longer touches the surface of the earth. Consequently, because of this, uh, there's widespread ramifications on the food chain as crops die out, so animals have either been eaten themselves or died off because they can't find food, uh, and crops no longer grow without the light of the sun. You might see a world where several years after the catastrophic event that ended modern civilization, the majority of the populace are dead, save those who are ruthless enough to survive in such a world, in such an environment, along with a few outliers, nice people who have somehow made it thus far. Well, enter our two pilgrims. They are an old father whose strength is failing him and whose wife chose death and his son, who is too young to take care of himself and has not developed basic survival instincts to survive in such a world. Well, the tale documents how this poor, old, decrepit father and his small little boy are met by a number of villains whose humanity has long since left them in exchange for the ruthlessness and the malice that's required to survive in such a world where humans hunt humans, where basic food and other resources have been almost entirely exhausted and where your next meal really just isn't certain. There's no one to help them, no one to defend them, 
as these two pilgrims make their journey south where they hope to find safe harbor. And that's their only hope, to get south. That or a gun with two bullets meant not for their enemies, but meant for themselves, to spare them from the painfulness of being consumed by their enemies. So this journey imaginably requires great skill in a world where humans hunt humans and rob one another of other basic resources. It's a perilous and nearly hopeless pilgrimage, and there's no certainty that there is even light at the end of the tunnel. And I share this with you because I think this is a realistic picture of our world, but for the grace of God. I think this kind of danger is a real threat for people that are afflicted by those that hate them. And yet vastly different from the theme of the road and those two pilgrims is the theme that our text presents to us today. There, there's no hopelessness. There, there's no hope. It's only hopelessness. But this psalm, penned by David, is a call to pilgrims to testify to what God has done for them. And the pilgrim, therefore, expresses what would have happened to them and that the Lord has been and continues to be their help, delivering them from all their foes. And what we come to find and learn from this psalm is that as pilgrims ourselves, in a world of trouble, in a world of danger, in a world of sin, we confess, we can confess not only what should happen to us, but what has happened because God is not only our deliverer, but also the maker of heaven and earth. And we'll look at that in two primary ways today. First, the pilgrim's confession, and second, the pilgrim's procession. The pilgrim's confession and the pilgrim's profession. So first, the pilgrim's confession. Now, I want to start with a general outline of what the psalmist is doing here in order to orient us to its structure and how he is working. The psalm is ascribed to David and opens with, I think, what we could call a, a, a scenario that he's setting up that's a, a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical counterfactual, if you will. If it was not the case that the Lord was watching over and protecting Israel, what would have happened to them? But it's not just David alone confessing what would have happened, but David calling out to the rest of Israel, really, to testify with him what would have happened. He's essentially saying, can I get an amen? Testify with me. What would have happened if it was not that the Lord was on our side? And we find the answer to that question taken up in verse 2 to 5. Israel takes up David's counterfactual themselves in their response. If it was not that the Lord was on our side, this is what would have happened to us. We then see in the second half of the psalm, in verse 6 to 7, not only what would have happened if the Lord was not on their side, but Israel's praise to God in light of what did happen because he was on their side. And then there is this final closing statement declaring what has already become plain by this moment, since what would have happened didn't happen, and since the Lord did deliver them, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Notice then, as David calls out, it's a corporate call. This is the confession of God's people, the congregation of God's people, answering this call, confessing their faith together and their deliverance. Now, contextually, this makes a whole lot of sense, I think, when we think that when we think on the fact that Psalm 124 is what's called the Song of Ascent. In the, song, in the Psalter, the Songs of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. They're placed in the fifth book of the Psalter. And what, they were, what these Psalms of Ascent were used for were 
the pilgrims, uh, the pilgrims' song, really. The people would sing these as they were going up to or out of Jerusalem during uh, the various uh, cultic feasts surrounding Israel's religious life. During these times, pilgrims from all over the land would travel up to Jerusalem, and this is what they would confess together. And it was not just as they were going up to Jerusalem, but also as they would uh, partake in these feasts, and also then as they would go out from Jerusalem from these feasts. And so this is why I think it's justifiable that we can set this psalm in the context of pilgrimage, because it was a psalm used by pilgrims during their travels most notably up to Jerusalem for these feasts and then out of Jerusalem from these feasts. So the people then take upon their lips the very hypothetical counter-to-fact scenario that David set up. If it had not been that the Lord was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters." Now, as they take up an answer to David's counter-to-fact scenario to his call, there is a temporal aspect in their response. The hypothetical situation is about if the Lord was not on their side. But it is about when, that is, in the various specific times in the life of God's people when enemies did rise up against them. So it's not a make-believe situation. These are real times in the life of God's people when they experienced enemies who rose up against them. In answering in this temporal way, then, the congregation is contrasting God and man. Yahweh is with us, man is against us. So what if we didn't have him on our side for that? The whole point is to lead them to conclude that if it was not that the Lord was with them, then nobody would have stood with them. They would have certainly perished, and they would not have survived. And so the inevitable result of thinking about there would be destruction, if it had not been that the Lord had stood with them, is that they turned to praise God for His deliverance. They turned to praise God for His provision for them. So we want to then ask as we approach this text, what's the imagery that's painted? How do they construct the image of the way that God delivered them during this time? Well, they paint their affliction and hypothetical abandonment in verse 2 to 5 in the imagery of water, floods, and drowning. They describe those who rose up against them as swallowing them up alive because their anger was kindled against them. And this angry swallowing would have led them to be swept away and drowned by the flood, the torrent, and also by the raging waters. All of this is flood imagery, yes? Enemies whose anger is kindled are described as enveloping and drowning, sweeping away the people of God. Now, what I find interesting about this kind of language, as a description for the enemies who rose up against God's people, is that the prophetic and wisdom literature in the Scriptures use this language to describe God's wrath against the wicked when they kindled His anger. Wicked being both the enemies of God's people as well as God's people. And so we know then that pictures of water judgment are not foreign to the Old Testament. In response to the wickedness that God sees in the days of Noah, it says in Genesis chapter 4, 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. 
We think also on the Exodus narrative, where Israel came to the edge of the Red Sea. Then Moses stretched out his hand over, over the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. So here Israel crosses on dry ground through who, though God, through Moses, is effectively stretching out his hand in judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt in watery judgment. Well, we could now switch. Those are the enemies of God's people. We can see they don't touch any water when they're object of his mercy. In Isaiah 8, the prophet testifies, because this people has refused the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin in the son of Ramaliah, therefore look. The Lord is bringing up the waters of the great and mighty river against them, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he will rise above his channels and he will flow over his banks and he will sweep into Judah. He will overflow and he will flood up to the neck. In 2 Samuel 17, 16, we see that this language of being swallowed up also has to do with the floodwaters. So then send quickly and tell David, don't spend the night at the fords of the wilderness. Moreover, by all means, cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. The prophet Jeremiah also speaks of God washing over judgment in ba- uh, against Babylon. He also speaks in lamentation of God swallowing up the dwellings of Jacob without mercy. Similarly, the prophet Habakkuk questioned why the Lord would raise up a nation more wicked than God's own people to punish them. And there he says, why are you silent when the wicked swallows up someone more righteous than him? So, okay, that's pretty interesting. Do you notice how similar the language is here throughout the scriptures, the testimony of scriptures? And the way it connects this this verbiage to our passage today? The kindling of anger, the floodwaters that would have swept away God's people and gone over their heads, the torrents that would sweep through the low valleys on a moment's notice. These are the waters of God's judgment that he brings against the wicked. These floodwaters, these raging waters are enemies of judgment that God raised up to punish his people for their rebellion in hard hearts. At least that's the context of this psalm. And so in the perspective of the ancient Near East, water comes from the mount of God and its emanating point is, is located at the watery entrance of death, or Sheol. That's some interesting illusion, or at least imagery, wouldn't you say? Back to Mount Sinai. Don't touch the mountain, lest you die. So the mountain is the place where judgment is pronounced and is even symbolic of death. Here's how the image would work. Those who live in the low valleys, beneath the feet of the mountain, when it rained in the, uh, up, in the, up in the mountains, would have no idea just how much rain was coming. And so the rain would come down and swell and wash over them and wash them away completely. Jonah speaks of it this way, while deep in the waters of the belly of the whale, I went down to the foundations of the mountain, the underworld, Sheol. 
So what's the point of all of this? The watery image that the psalm is painting is how God brought upon Israel enemies to judge them for their hard hearts and for their wickedness. Instead of letting them be swallowed up completely by death, instead of letting them drown and be swept away by the waters of death, he keeps their heads just above water. God rendered judgment from up on high upon those at the foot of the mountain, and yet it doesn't sweep them away in death even when they're wicked. On the other end of the spectrum, when Israel crossed a river or sea on dry ground where otherwise it should be wet, it was because they were the objects of God's complete and total loving kindness, mercy, and grace. This would be not just the case for the Red Sea where Pharaoh pursued after them and they crossed on dry ground, but also when the ark of the Lord went before Israel as they crossed into the promised land. They, they walked on dry ground there. So in this psalm then, what they're saying is that the Lord was with them in undeserved covenant and mercy despite their hardness of hearts, despite the justice of His waters of judgment against them. They didn't perish. Instead, what did happen was that He sprang them loose from the jaws of the lion. He sprang them loose and the, from the trap and they went free. Though the enemy sank their teeth in, yet we have escaped. Though the bird track was successful and we, we, got, we got caught in it, we certainly would have been butchered, God sprang us loose from the trap. I'm not, I, I've never done any hunting. Um, I've never gone out to catch any birds, but YouTube can be quite uh, helpful in this regard. So if you've ever seen an animal that is trapped, you know how it rises and... and, and wrangles about to try to get free. But no longer do the people of God writhe and jerk about trying to get free from the trap that has caught them. The trap they justly deserve to be uh, subject to. Enemies did pour over Israel, but they did not drown. They did die. They did get caught by the teeth of their enemy, but they did not get caught. God sprang them loose from the trap. From the jaws of the lion, he sprang them loose. So I think the image here that's being painted, at least by the psalmist, is not that God's people never have problems or that their enemy is always put down or that they always win by eight goals. If we're talking about soccer here. And eight goals is a lot in soccer, by the way. It's more like we were down by two goals and we scored three with 30 seconds to go, which is a miracle. So the church somehow survives from the jaws of death even when she suffers. That's what the Israelites seem to be painting here. The church is the object of God's mercy even in their sin. And God has done it from the very brink of death. He has delivered his people. The creator who made the heavens and the earth then, their right to proclaim, is their help. He is the one who is certainly powerful enough to deliver his people from the enemies that he rose up against them. And that's what his people now confess. Now that might seem like a conundrum to you. It might seem kind of funky that I'm saying, and that the psalmist is saying, from the, you know, God spring us loose from the justice we, we deserved. 
If it had not been that the Lord was on our side when he brought the waters of judgment of Babylon against us, then we would have died. And we deserve that judgment. But when we stop for a moment and we think about it, we realize that I think this is actually very similar in some way, at least, if not comparable to what we teach in the first use of the law. It teaches us of our need for someone who would come and do what we could not. The law teaches us of our need for another, a mediator whose blood would atone for our sin and who would do, accomplish the righteous requirement of the law in our stead. So Israel, recalling how the Lord has spared them from perishing at the judgment that they justly deserve, moved to praise for God's help and grace to them. Receiving judgment for their sin makes them realize just how great God is, and the fact that He has not wiped them out completely or exacted the full penalty of the law, death upon them, leads them to praise Him for His grace and to confess our help is in the name of the Lord. So certainly, it leads them to praise, it leads them to recognize His grace and to turn to Him more and more and to cling to Him. Now, contextually, in this psalm, label a song of ascent, that is exactly what they've been confessing. But they're not just confessing God's goodness as they think back on and remember what He has done for them. They're doing that as those who are part of a procession. Now, I choose that word procession for good reason. It means a group of individuals moving along in an orderly or ceremonial way. Now, I said earlier, that's really what a song of ascent is for. The congregation of God's people who are in a procession leading up to Jerusalem to celebrate the holy feast centered around Israel's cultic life in the temple. And as they're doing so, they're confessing these truths. So take Passover, for example. Israel is making a pilgrimage up from their homes to Jerusalem for this feast. Uh, They're confessing their deliverance from God's just judgment as they make ready to feast upon a lamb whose shed blood points them to the blood of one who, unlike this lamb, would never have to be re-sacrificed to atone for their sin. They're in a procession into the city of their God toward its apex, the temple, whose whole point is to symbolize God's presence with them, which was achieved by the blood of their mediator. And so this was the practice for God's people during the reign of David, in Israel prior to their exile in Babylon and Persia. That was normative for them to recite as they made that pilgrimage. But here's the, there's a complexity. The Psalter was compiled sometime after Israel went into, into exile in Persia. Now, we don't know exactly when that was or how that was, but it was either during their exile or sometime after they returned from exile, before or after they rebuilt the temple. So in each and every case here then, the land that the Israelites are returning to when the Psalter is constructed and placed here in the Psalter, this psalm, that is, placed here in the Psalter, that land has a temple whose glory pales in its excellence and its majesty compared to the last, and they're returning to a city whose king is not Davidic. And as they're returning to Jerusalem, they would be confessing this psalm together. These are exiles returning, going up to Jerusalem to a templeless or an inglorious and pathetic temple, praising God and blessing Him 
because the judgment they justly deserved did not wash them away in death. I think then what the editors are doing in placing this psalm here in this way is showing that really and truly this deliverance that they speak of, as they make their pilgrimage up to the city of their God for the feast, that city is pointing to a different city and that feast is pointing to a different feast. They are heading to a temple and a feast much more glorious than the earthly one ever was. They are heading to a heavenly city where the lamb is never again required to be in God's presence because there was a lamb who was sacrificed once and for all. It's a city that could not be built with hands but was rebuilt by the recreator and inaugurator of the new Jerusalem by David's own son. After all, we started reading it tonight. Colossians 3.15 says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, by whom and for whom all things were created. Speaking of the Son. But there's a complexity to that as well. There's a work that needs to be done in order for that to happen. Someone has to be cut off. Someone has to suffer the full extent of the waters of God's judgment that his people deserve. And so to put this in perspective then, there is no man in history so opposed by man as Jesus Christ. But there is also no man so opposed by God as Jesus Christ. It was not just the enemies who came to take his life, but God himself rose up in justice and judgment against him so that the day turned to night such that he was swallowed up alive by wrathful judgment. Whereas God's people in exile were never totally abandoned by him or swallowed up in judgment for sin, uh, that, that is, God's judgment for sin is death and a picture of the eternal judgment that we will experience. So God's people were never completely swallowed up by this. But Christ himself was abandoned by God and given up to and swallowed up by death. His life was not delivered like a bird from a trap. He was not delivered from the jaws of death. He was not sprung loose. No, he was given over to the snare. He was consumed by the jaws of death. And they swallowed him whole. And I think that we could stop here and we could say this could be the end of the story. Wait a second. What do you mean? Well, I say this because if I'm arguing that Christ has suffered the full penalty of God's wrath so that his people don't have to suffer judgment, then we look around today at the church, no longer in a theocracy, where obedience has blessings and curses attached in the same way that it did for the Mosaic economy, for the people living in Israel in the Mosaic covenant. And I say, and you say, well, what about the church when she suffers? If Christ was cut off completely and suffered judgment, why does the church suffer? Well, in many ways, we can expect this level of suffering at the hands of our adversaries. We think on Jesus' own promises to us. That just as the world hated him, it would hate us. 
We look around at the Chinese church or the Christians in Nigeria and we wonder, has God not allowed them to be handed over to death? Have they not been swallowed up alive by their enemies? Where is this deliverance for them? I remember some of my, one of my favorite stories from the Reformation are the words of Hugh Latimer that, as he spoke to his companion, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light a fire, uh, light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And I think justifiably we might ask, when has this suffering at the hands of the enemies, that we'd, uh, those that we'd call enemies, not been true of the church of God? The church is afflicted and beaten and battered and bruised. And Paul promises this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not beaten. Perplexed, but not depressing. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around the death of Jesus in our body. Why? in order that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body, for we who are continually being handed over to death because of Jesus, in order that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. How can we promise suffering that might continually lead us to be handed over to death for Christ if death is an image of God's judgment? Because here death at the hands of our enemies does not carry the same connotation that it did for Israel. For Israel, death at the hands of the flood of their enemies was God's judgment against them, and against their sin, against their inability to keep the law that they had sworn to do. Here, the end of the story is not the death of Jesus as he was swallowed up by the jaws of death, but the end of the story is that God's wrath was poured out like a flood on him in order that the words of Isaiah might be fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7. That's where the full ending of the story comes in. That Christ himself did, as Isaiah prophesied, swallow up death in victory. Coincidental language? The judge became the judge of the legal verdict against him. And so death is just not just God's curse for sin, it's a judgment against sin. And in this way, it was a picture of the greatest threat that mankind has, has ever known. God's judgment. But in the resurrection, Christ himself was the one who was swallowed up in covenant judgment. And then he becomes the one who swallows up death in victory. And so in his resurrection and in, and in his ascension, he was not just the creator and the maker of heaven and earth, but he became the recreator who inaugurated the new Jerusalem. And that new Jerusalem is the city that we are embarked toward. The one who was swallowed up by death and the greatest threat that death brought, God's kindled wrath, swallowed up death in victory forever. And then bursting forth in glorious day, he burst the bonds of death he broke free from the, the, the snares of the, of the lion, the jaws of the lion, and up from the grave he arose again, and now he has the power of indestructible life. And no enemy can threaten that power he has. No enemy can threaten that life he has. 
So then our hope to solve the conundrum is not that we won't have to face our enemies or that we, they won't prevail over us and lead us to die. Our hope is that our pilgrimage to the heavenly court is secured by the help of the Lord who drowned in death and by his death and resurrection inaugurated the new Jerusalem. The fact that death could not contain him vindicated him as the righteous Savior who accomplished the covenant of works, who alone was able to purchase entrance into the city of God. So the ultimate dilemma, an enemy who stands against man will now never have the last word. Not only that, but we never ever have to suffer judgment for sin at the hands of our enemies because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath completely for us. He was completely cut off in the waters of baptism so that you being baptized into him would never suffer judgment for sin the way that Israel did. He received the waters of the judgment of your baptism for you so that those waters become cleansing waters. So suffering as God's people in our pilgrimage then is no longer described as judgment, nor can any of it, even death itself, hinder our arrival at the city of our God for that heavenly feast as we make confession and profession there. Procession there. In that city, we will be clothed in the same power of Christ's indestructible life, and there we will be as his bride, arriving at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Our hope in our pilgrimage, then, therefore, is not like the hope of the pilgrims in McCarthy's novel. It's not two hopeless bullets that we hope will bring us into the oblivion of death. It's not a hopeless world where dark clouds fill the sky. It's not a hopeless world ruled by fear. It's a sure knowledge that we are making our way not south where there might just be a few kind souls. It's the sure knowledge that we're making our way. Confessing as God's people the certainty of our faith that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And we're doing that as we make our way to the heavenly Jerusalem for that wedding feast of the Lamb. And if that can be described as the wedding feast, the full consummatory feast, do you know what this is? The rehearsal dinner. People of God, Jesus underwent the raging waters and came back. He crossed the Jordan before us so that we would cross on dry ground into that promised land. No suffering we ever experience can threaten the security of our journey on that road. So even when we express that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, it's not some trivial matter as we do tonight and in your evening services. What you're confessing is that you are those in the train of Christ's royal procession, following him into that eternal city. And you're doing that as those experiencing a foretaste of that heavenly feast, that heavenly Jerusalem. And what you're confessing is that he is the Lord who has dealt with the greatest problem that you will ever endure. God's kindled wrath, 
brought upon you in death-like judgment. And for that, you have great joy that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for you and that the security of your pilgrimage cannot be threatened by judgment because of what he has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, inasmuch as we are surrounded by turbulent seas, um, by a world of trouble, by a world of sorrow, we ask that we would be confident this evening of the certainty to which we have that we will arrive at that heavenly Jerusalem for that heavenly feast when we will have the power of indestructible life as Christ himself has purchased for us. Give us praise, give us confidence in our hearts uh, to which we now turn with the help of God's Spirit, Christ's Spirit, uh, and in his name. Amen.